John chapter 17. And we're going to continue in our look at these words in the high priestly prayer of the Lord in John 17. I'm going to start reading from, uh, from verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 8 this morning. But we're just going to be focused on verses 4 and 5. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. That they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And they were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them. And have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Let's pray one more time together as we, as we come to the word. Our God in heaven, we do ask one more time for your rich blessing upon, upon this short time that we have together. These words are, these words are great, even greater that, than we could imagine, Lord. And I pray that you, would take, that you would take my feeble words and that you would hide them behind yours. I pray that you would lift up our hearts to heaven as we think on the glories of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Help me to be clear in my preaching and in my speaking. And I pray that you would tap on each one of our hearts here today. That you would convict us of our sins. That you would draw us to the cross afresh today. That you would cause us to grow more and more in love of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. So, as I mentioned earlier, we have begun a study on what has come to be called the High Priestly Prayer of the Lord here in John chapter 17. And it's called that because the Lord Jesus Christ is the the high priest of His people. And in the Old Testament, the priests, you remember, they represented God's people. They represented... God's people before God and they brought their case to Him. They brought their sacrifices to God on on behalf of the people of God. And that's what the Lord Christ is about to do in these chapters that are about to happen in, in chapter 18 and on. But before the priest brings the sacrifice for sin, before he brings himself as the, as the Lamb of God, as it says in John chapter 1, He pauses and He prays for His people. He prays for you and He prays for me. 
He says it so directly in these words. He says in verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then he says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone. There were 11 guys who were with him. There used to be 12. One of them, Judas Iscariot, has left. He's gone to betray the Lord. And there are 11 guys sitting there. And he says, I'm not praying for these 11 guys only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who that is? That's you and that's me. If you have trusted in in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus Christ says in in John 17.20 that He has prayed for you. He has prayed for you. And so last week what we looked at was the themes of true religion. The themes of true religion if you remember that. In verses 1 through 3, he starts, the very first thing he says is, Father, the hour has come. The purpose of the universe has come. Like the the crux time is here. Now glorify your Son, that the Son also may glorify you. What What he's pointing out is, the universe has been created for this time when the Son of God is going to purchase sinners with His blood And what He wants is the glory of the Godhead to be lifted up. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. So last time we focused on Christ's hour, the coming of His hour. We focused on Christ's desire, His desire to see the Godhead lifted up and glorified in all the earth. And we focused on Christ's gift, right? Well, what is this gift that He wanted? What is this gift that He was giving? In verse 2, He says, You have given Him authority over all flesh. Jesus Christ is the King. Rejoice, the Lord is King. He's the King over all flesh for this reason, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. Well, what does that look like? What does that eternal life look like? Does it look like A hundred dollars? Does it look like a thousand dollars? Does it look like a ranch on a mountain somewhere? Does it look like a nice car? Does it look like a cushy, a cushy existence? And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ gives life by imparting the knowledge of God. You guys see that connection? He says in verse 2, I give eternal life. Well, what's eternal life? The knowledge of God. So what did He give? He gave the knowledge of God. He gave the knowledge of God. Why do you believe in God today? (laughs) Because He gave you the knowledge of God. Time runs on. So today we're going to look at in verses 4 on the topic of examining the glory of Christ and finishing His task. Okay, Examining the glory of Christ and finishing His task. And our first point is examining His task. Let me read verses 4 and 5 again. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. 
And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Look in verse 4. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have glorified you, Father, from start to finish. For as long as he was alive, all he ever did was glorify the Father. Could you say that? None but the spotless Lamb of God can say that. No matter, no matter how good our intentions are, no matter how godly of a person you are, you can't claim that all you've ever done is glorify God. There's only one who is able to say that. And that was this one. The Lord Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth. Well, how did he do that? Well, he did it by finishing the work which he had given him to do. And you see that in verse 4? He was given a task. He was given a job. The Lord Jesus Christ was given a job. So that's why we're examining this first point. We're examining his task. Notice he wasn't just given a job. He was given the job. He was given the work. You see that there in verse 4? I have, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Well, what's this work? The Lord Jesus Christ was given a job to complete, a job to finish. Well, what's the job? When was he given this job? What this is describing, this task that he was given, is reaching way back into eternity. In, before the world existed. What Christians call this is... The covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. And what this covenant of redemption is, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When there was nothing in existence but God, no angels, no devils, no world, no universe, but God alone planned, planned to create a world, planned to save people out of the world, planned that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would take on flesh. He would come and live and fulfill the law that they couldn't live. And He would shed His blood to redeem people. But what people was that? The Son of God was, the the plan was that the Son of God would come and save these people, but who were these people? Well, in verse 6, you see, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. There's a group of people that the Father had given to the Son as a gift. You see that there in verse 6? I have manifested your name to the men. Who? All men? No. To the men whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. You know, there's, there's another Bible word for this, and it kind of scares people sometimes. But it shouldn't scare you. This, the, the word for this is the elect. God elected a group of people to become the Son's inheritance. Well, then what was the Holy Spirit going to do? Remember, we're talking about this covenant of redemption that's taking place in eternity past. God's plan. The Father elected to give a people to the Son as His gift, as His inheritance. 
and the Son was going to come and take on human flesh to shed His blood and save these people. And the Holy Spirit of God was going to come and to regenerate them, to make them new, and apply that work to their lives. Does that make sense? That's the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. (laughs) What that means is that when you wake up in the morning, tomorrow, you're not just waking up to, to the job that you have to go to do down at Geiger's tomorrow. You're waking up in the world of God's plan. You see that? God has a plan. He created a world and He put people in that world to save them. And if you're trusting in Christ, you're one of them. And, you, and when you wake up on Monday morning, you're waking up to a universe that's bigger than Mendocino County. You're waking up in a world that is governed by the sovereign determination of the everlasting God. The covenant of redemption. You're waking up in a world and living for something that matters. That makes sense? <clears throat> Turn over to Acts chapter 4 and, and we're going to look at verses 27 and 28 to, to look at this plan a little bit more. And as you're turning there, I want to, I want to show you that this plan is spoken of in different places pretty much all throughout the Bible. Psalm chapter 2. Just listen to this. We already talked about how the Son was given a people. Well, He's also given a people. This is what, this is what was spoken to the Son from Psalm chapter 2. Thou art my Son... This day I have begotten me. Ask of me and I shall give you the nations for your inheritance. An inheritance. Okay, so there's a people. Ask of me and I will give the nations for your inheritance. Why is it that there's a church in Laytonville, California? Because the son asked for a people in Laytonville to be his inheritance. That's what Psalm 2 says. Psalm 110, verses 1, 3, and 4. He was given a people. He was given a kingdom. He's given a priesthood. This is what, the, this is what David is, is saying. He says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. So we have the people again. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. Well, willing subjects, giving themselves over to himself willingly. When the the Lord is given this power, his people come and they give themselves willingly. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's from Psalm 110, before the Lord Jesus Christ even took on human flesh. So what what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show you that this covenant of redemption is is spoken of in different places of the scripture, right? Now, over in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, 
I want to show you the chosen instrument by which, by which this plan is going to take place. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, this is verse 27, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Well, when were all of these people gathered together? They were gathered together as a bloodthirsty crowd calling out for the blood of the Son of God. This was at the crucifixion, right? Now verse, 20, now verse 28. Why were they gathered together to do this? To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. What that verse means is that the cross was not God losing control of history. It means that what happened of the cross was God moving all these events together to fulfill His exact purpose for history. See that? You had these Romans, you had the Gentiles, you had the Israelites, everybody gathered together against the Son of God and they were going to crucify Him and hang Him on a cross to do whatever God's hand and God's purpose had determined before to be done. That's some big stuff. Do you have questions about that? Like, how is it that that God could in His plan have planned the murder How does that fit with God being a holy God? Yeah, we have questions as finite human beings. You you, you see the question that I'm trying to ask here? Because the crucifying of the Son of God is the greatest crime that has ever taken place in the history of the universe. And why did it happen? It happened according to God's plan. And at the exact same time, He remained perfectly holy and innocent throughout it all. And when our finite human minds ask, how could that be? You're asking the right question. And that's when you lay your hand on your mouth and say, I have no idea. I don't know how you did that. But it's amazing. It's amazing. Turn back a couple pages to chapter 2 and look at verse 23 and see this again. The Apostle Peter is preaching on Pentecost. Chapter 2, verse 23. Him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Same thing. Same thing. So, what I want to, what I'm trying to bring, what I'm trying to bring to bear here is that the cross was necessary for the fulfilling of the work. When the Lord says, I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work, what is He looking at? He's looking at everything that He's done so far. Giving sight to the blind, healing the sick, raising the dead, speaking, teaching, preaching. But also central was what was ahead of him. And it had to be done. The cross. The cross was plan A for fulfilling the task. Okay, so that was examining the task. 
Now let's examine his labor to finish the task. His labor to finish the task. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. In chapter 4 of this same book, in chapter 4 and verse 34, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says. He says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. And notice this, to finish His work. To finish His work. Now, in John 17, in verse 4, maybe you have a question. He's talking like the work is already finished, right? He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. But he hasn't yet gone to the cross. So why can he say that he has finished it? Well, he speaks very similarly in verse 11. Look down at verse 11. I am no longer in the world. But these are in the world and I come to you. But he's sitting there at the table with them. So what the Lord means in verse 11 is he's so close to ascending up to heaven that it might as well be done. Same kind of thing here. When, when he says in verse 4, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. The cross is right before him. He is completely determined to go there. And he is going to do it. So that's why he can say, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. <clears throat> so now, I want us to pause and think about this. Because what we see here, what we see here is the Son of God as a king, as the sovereign, endeavoring to fulfill this work. Remember what we were just talking about. The cross didn't happen to him by accident. It happened to him because he wanted it to happen. And I want to, I want to emphasize this by turning over to John chapter 19 and look at verse 10. Then Pilate said to him, The Lord is on trial and he's about to be crucified. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And from the world's perspective, the answer was, Yeah, I know that you have power to do that. And if you were in that place, you likely would have said something like that. You probably would have nodded and said, Yeah, I I know that you can do that. But notice how the Lord answers in verse 11. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. That's the King Jesus answering Pilate and saying, your power is derived from a heavenly authority. You're just part of the plan. You're not ruining this for me. This is my intention. This is my purpose. You could crucify me. And when you do so, it's because the power 
for you to do that has been given you. But more than that, more than that, turn back to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 18. The Lord Jesus speaking of himself as the, as the great shepherd of the sheep. He says, no one takes it from me. In other words, no one takes my life from me. That's what he was talking about in verse 7. I'll start in verse 7. Therefore my fa- uh, 17, I'm sorry, verse 17. Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received from my father. See, you see the cross. The cross was his purpose. He was coming to the cross. Christ's movement toward the cross was not the king losing control of the battlefield. That was the king taking his intentional steps to fulfill his own purposes there. So now to just let our minds dwell on this a little bit. Glance over at chapter 18 and verse 3. The Lord Jesus Christ is gone to the garden. And the, and the crowds have come to arrest Him and take Him away and kill Him. Verse 3, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now notice this. Do you see how the word he is in italics there? Do you see that? That's because the word he is not in, isn't in the original text. What he actually said to them was, I am. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know what that means. You know it was his claim that, that he's the God who's got this all under control. And so watch what happens. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said unto them, or when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. The utterance of the voice of God about to be arrested by this mob, throws them all back. What does that show us? Why is that important? It shows us that he was not trapped in the garden. He was giving himself over in the garden. Do you remember remember when he says elsewhere, even now I could ask for legions of angels to come and save me. At this very same time, when, when he's about to be arrested and taken and crucified, he says, even now I could ask for these angels. But why didn't he? Because his plan, his purpose, the task, the work that he was given to do in the covenant of redemption necessitated the cross. Cross. Think about some more of these questions. Why did he go through the mockery of a trial with the Jews? Because he had a job to finish. 
Why was he scourged by Pilate? Why was he whipped? Because he had a task to finish. Why was he pierced by nails and hung on a tree between two thieves on a center cross? It was because that was his job that he was going to finish. He was going to finish the work that was given him to do. And he was set to do it. The cross was the battlefield where this king was going to win his victory. And it had to be at the cross. It had to be at the cross. You remember those soldiers who were gambling for his clothes? You guys remember that? Well, those soldiers thought that they were gambling because they wanted his shirt. But that's not why they were gambling for his clothes. You know that? Look over at chapter 19 and verse 24. Then the soldiers, verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each part Uh, to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece, verse 24. Then they said, Therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? And here was the reason why. That the purpose, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And what is quoted there is Psalm 22, verse 18. The soldiers were gambling. They thought because they wanted the shirt. But they were gambling because the work had to be finished. See that? This is the king in control. Why is it when the Lord says, I thirst? Why does he say that? To fulfill the scripture is what it says. Let me try to find the verse here for you. It's in the same chapter. It's in verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all these things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Well, why did he thirst on the cross? to fulfill the work that he was given to do. He was in control of it all from start to finish. So now, as all of this is happening, and as the, as the Lord is hanging there on the tree, he finally says in victory in verse 30, it is finished. It is finished. It's done. It's done. The work is done. The work is done. Gone to the cross. I've accomplished it. Well now, what exactly did he accomplish? What exactly did he accomplish? And this is a wonderful thought. The first thing that he accomplished there when he says it is finished is that He saves all of his people through the cross. Back in John 17, in verse 12, we read about 
all of these people that he's going to save. While I was with, while I was with them, I kept them in the. Uh, I'm sorry. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Turn back to John 10 in verse 16. John 10:16 says, "And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. I must bring. The Lord Jesus Christ has sheep to save and he's going to save them. And you know he did that throughout his life from start to finish. From start to finish. That's why he was teaching and preaching where and how he was teaching and preaching. He was saving his sheep. You know the scripture that says, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes and looks for the one. And as I was thinking about this example, or as I was thinking about this concept, one of the wonderful examples that came to my mind is the one that was happening right there on the cross that day. He had another sheep to save. He was crucified between two thieves. And to start with, when the day began and their hands were nailed to those pieces of wood, they started off by joining in with the rest of the crowd, mocking him. Those two men who were dying there, shedding their blood for their own sins, were mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. But something happened to one of them. And he stopped his friend at one point later on in the day. He stopped him and he said, we deserve to die here. And then he turned over to the Lord Jesus Christ and he said, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. He started off that day as a rebel against the king. But in an instant, somehow, he knew more. Like, just think about what he knew. Lord, remember me. This man's about to die, so it appears. Jesus Christ is about to die. And yet he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? That man is confessing he knows Christ is going to live again. He knows he's a king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows that his only hope is Christ. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows so much. The Lord looks at that sheep. And he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that sheep was saved. But think about all the pieces that had to come together in order for that last sheep to be... Not the last sheep, because obviously we're here. But, but in order for that sheep to, to be saved. What had to happen in order for him to be there when Christ was there? What if Christ was crucified a day earlier? That sheep would have... They wouldn't have met. But the Lord was in control. He brought all the pieces together where at the cross where that man was paying for his sins. Jesus Christ was also paying for his sins. That's an amazing thing. He saves all of his people at the cross. You know what that illustrates is that there's not a single elect person on this on this planet who's going to perish. 
He saves from start to finish. All of them. He's going to save all of them. And notice this also. He perfectly pays their ransom. That's the other thing that he achieves. He perfectly pays their ransom. He perfectly paid your ransom. Turn over to Roman uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 10 to 14 together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 to 14. This is speaking of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has, a, who has accomplished the work, who has finished the work that He was given to do. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of one body of Jesus Christ once for all. Through the offering of Christ... You have been counted perfect, holy in the sight of God. That's what sanctified means. Holy. Verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. What he's talking about there is how in the Old Testament the priests as they served in the temple and as they served in the tabernacle, there was, there was different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, but you know what was not in the tabernacle? A chair. There was nowhere to sit. Why? Why didn't they have anywhere to sit? Because the priest had to work the whole time. He couldn't ever stop working. You see that there in verse 11? And every priest stands ministering daily Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. There's no chair in the tabernacle. But this man, Christ Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. You remember Psalm 110? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what he's hearkening back to you there. He's applying it to Christ. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And that is your state if you are in the Savior. Perfected for all time. Perfected for all time. When the Lord says, it's finished, it's finished. The debt is fully paid, completely paid, not even a little bit. I have, I have a receipt up in that office from Mendo Mill, and at the bottom it says, paid in full. That means I don't have to go back and, and square up And when the Lord Jesus Christ proclaims in victory on the cross and He says it's finished, you know what that means? It means there's nothing left to pay. Let Let me put some flesh on those bones for you. Because even as Christians, when we sin, our conscience comes back and hits us. And we think, surely I have to do something to make up for it. 
maybe we hang on to the guilt and we stew in the guilt because we think that the guilt is helping us pay for what we did. Do you ever do that? Do you think, well, I guess, I guess this guilt is helping me to like kind of make up for it. But when the Lord Jesus Christ says it's finished, guess what? He means it's finished. And the guilt that you feel shouldn't, you shouldn't think that that is paying for your sins, but it should drive you to the one who paid for your sins. Does that make sense? So when you sin tomorrow, And when you sin in five years and you sin a really big sin, you can imagine what that would be. Don't think you're incapable of that. Are you you incapable of adultery? David wasn't. And he was a believer. When you commit in five years a really big sin, Should you hang on to your guilt to try to pay for it? No, far be it, far be it. Because the king went to the cross for the task of finishing the work. And it says in verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Do you believe that? Look over at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. Another really wonderful another really wonderful text. He's talking about a sacrifice in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices that were used for like ceremonial cleansing, ceremonial purification. Well, look at what the sacrifice of Christ does in verse 14. For how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. By the way, notice how all three members of the Trinity are mentioned in that like one comma. How much more shall he cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, when you feel guilty for the sins that you committed, what is going to ease your conscience to get you to feel better? Nothing but the blood of Christ can do that. But here's the wonderful thing. The blood of Christ will do that. So when when you blow your top tomorrow, or if you flip someone off on the highway because, because they cut you off, your conscience smites you, and you know that was... So unworthy of me. How could I have done that? And your conscience eats, eats at you and you just feel this guilt. Remember, the only thing that can wash the conscience clean and give you true peace is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. So He saves all of His people. We might say it this way. He saves all of His people and He saves them all the way. And when the Lord says it is finished, 
That's what's baked into that. Saves all of his people and he saves him all the way. And here's our, here's our last point. Here's our last point. And I know I'm running short on time. But in John 17, verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. He then says in verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now notice this, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Christ is claiming there that he existed before the world existed in that he had glory together with the Father and by implication with the Spirit before the world existed. That's, that's my Lord. The glory of God in which he took part before the world existed. And now he says in verse 5, glorify me with that. In his deity, it was already his, but the Son of God, remember, to fulfill this covenant of redemption took on flesh, and now he's the God-man, and so he praises the God-man. Glorify me. Bring this glory also to my manhood. As this, as this, God, man, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. And that's what he's asking for. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the main point. Over in Philippians chapter 2, the Father has glorified him. This prayer has already been answered. The Father has glorified him. Man, I feel like I'm leaving so much out, but I can't leave it out. So Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is speaking of Christ. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, think of it, from heaven's throne to a virgin's womb. The God who fills all the universe, who spoke and made it all, leaps in a jump so vast and so steep it can't even be comprehended. The infinite becomes finite. The creator becomes created. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
the Father has exalted the Son. He's already answered this prayer. And I want to show you something in verse 9. Or uh, back, back in John. I'm sorry, back in John. And then I'll wrap up. But this is great. This is, this is great. Back in John chapter 12, in verse 32, this is what the Lord says. John 12, 32. He says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And I, if I am lifted up, if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to to myself. Do you know where else that word is used? It's used in John chapter 3 and verse 14. John chapter 3 and verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. How was the serpent lifted up? He was lifted up on a pole. So that whoever had been bit by the serpent could look and live. And the Son of Man shall also be lifted up on the cross. That whoever is bitten by sin, whoever is bitten by the serpent, could look and live. Not go to the doctor and live. That's not how it happened. You don't get to throw a tourniquet on there and save yourself. You look and you live. That's it. I think it was Charles, Charles Spurgeon was saved. He was saved in a sermon where the preacher said, any fool can look. Look and live. Look and live. Just look and live. Not do and live. Look and live. Because it's finished. But now here's the wonderful thing. The Son of Man is lifted up. He's lifted up. How? He's lifted up on the cross. But, but the wonderful thing is that so many other places in the New Testament, that same word is translated to exalt. How is the Son of Man exalted? He's exalted because He ascended the cross. He's exalted because He ascended the cross. That's where He gained His glory. That's where He won the battle. And when He says it's finished, that's His cry of victory. That's His cry of victory. So, so you, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, this is your testimony. You look at the Son of Man who was lifted up, and you say, that person who looks like he was defeated, who looks like he was killed, and made an embarrassment, he has won. That's where he won his glory. And I am part of his train. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, he says, Far be it from me to boast in anything save in the cross. That's the most glorious thing as a Christian. The cross. That's where it was finished for you. 
And that's where you see your Lord in all of His glory. But maybe you're here today and you have never seen it. Maybe you've even been in this church for for years. Maybe you've never seen the glory of the Son of Man who actually finished the work. Are you going to withhold your tongue from singing the praises of Christ who finished it? Can you, can you, can you live like a chunk of ice underneath the brilliant glory of the Son of God and not be melted? It needs to change your life. It needs to change your life. Well, how is it going to change my life? I can't get it to change my life. I can't learn to glory in the cross. I was thinking about this. You will never glory in what you never gaze at. If you you look at a diamond or a ruby you know how beautiful it is by looking at it and turning it over and examining it. But if you don't do that with Christ, He will never become precious to you. You'll never see the glory. So you must look and live. If you don't, you will perish. But there is glory to see. And there is life to be had in the Savior. So don't leave without thinking about it. Now, Father, glorify me. I have finished the work, he said. So let me pray. And we'll sing a song of praise to the Lord. And then we'll share some lunch together. Lord Jesus, these, these words that you have spoken to us are they're so deep, so broad, they're so glorious because they come from the infinite God who took on human flesh for us and for our salvation. You saved us perfectly. And I pray that by your Spirit, the voice of the Son of Man would be heard today and that all those who are in graves spiritually would come out and live. And those of us who are alive, may our love for you be stoked and fanned into flame to behold the glory of our Christ who has done it all. We worship you today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, You can stay seated as we sing this song. We're going to sing number 224. And if you don't yet know the glory of Christ, 
Make this your prayer. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Number 224. Number 224. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride forbidden Lord that should boast save in the death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His head, His hands, His feet. love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown were the whole realm of that were a present far too small love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my own